Hi, folks. Welcome back to part three of episode 21, The Great Depression. As always, I am Dan Brady. I am Johnny Smith. And together, with our powers combined, we are what in the history. Oh, man. So, Johnny, what do you think of uh, part two? I thought it was pretty interesting, man. Information, a lot of ground to cover, uh, set up like... Uh, FDR and how he was perceived in his social programs. I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah. And folks, if you like this, but you haven't listened to the rest of our stuff, uh, please like subscribe, share. Uh, I know on podcast addict and iTunes and anchor, you can leave reviews. You can star our, you know, podcast, please do that. It helps us out in the long run. It helps us reach more people. And plus we just, we want to hear from you. Absolutely, guys. Check us out. We're reachable. We're approachable. We are still nobody, so you can get in our inbox, and we will respond. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, part three, we're going to talk about the end of the Great Depression, some of the setbacks that were faced by the FDR administration, and then, um, <laughs> and then, uh, then we're going to go straight into kind of like what really ended the Great Depression, and that was the help of the start of World War II, because even though we weren't involved until 1941, we were still uh, sending stuff over to the Allied powers. So that kind of helped our industrial, uh, you know, get revitalized. Kept us moving. Yeah, kept us moving. It, 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 it shot life back into the American economy. You know, war has always been good for us. And I don't know, maybe after the Great Depression, it solidified that we need to be in active war because that seems to be the way we go. So, uh, you know, after the the election in 1936, if we, you know, remember, uh, Roosevelt got like 98% of the electoral votes is uh, 523 out of 532 possible. So he was very popular. And the New Deal was very popular. Um, But when he was elected in 1932, Roosevelt inherited a court that leaned more conservative than liberal. Uh, Four justices were termed the four horsemen by the press or mostly appointees of Republican presidents. You have Pierce Butler, George Sutherland, Willis Van Deventer, and James Clark Reynolds. The lone goddamn James Reynolds. <laughs> oh, James Clark Reynolds. I tell you what. No, seriously, there have been some judges that don't need. No, I don't know. I know there's somebody like that though. <laughs> the lone exception was an appointee of Woodrow Wilson, James Clark McReynolds, Wilson's former attorney. Uh, starting in the January of 1936, the four horsemen, along with two other justices, declared the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933 unconstitutional and a violation of the Tenth Amendment. Three other cases in 1936 voided other New Deal measures. In Carter v. Carter Coal Company, the court struck down legislation that regulated coal expenditures. In Moorhead v. New York, the court struck down a law requiring a minimum wage put in place for women and children workers. The biggest blow, however, to Roosevelt's agenda came from the Schechter Poultry Corps 
versus United States. The high court ruled that the National Industrial Recovery Act, one of the first pieces of legislation passed by the new Congress and part of the New Deal, was unconstitutional. Specifically, the court ruled that unanimously that the NIRA was an excessive use of the legislature's power and that it blurred the line between the executive and the legislative branches of government. These, yeah, man, a lot of, a lot of interesting court cases. I remember uh, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Johnny Smith. They were trying to do something with a five-year deal and uh, he pleaded out for less. So that very interesting court cases going on. Yeah. You know, you will always have uh, Republicans trying to keep uh, good working white men down. And then the Democrats always opposing whatever the Republicans do. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it, historically, you'll just have, no matter what good it is, if a Republican said it, Democrats are against it. And if Democrats say it, Republicans are against it, no matter what good uh, can happen from it, as what we're seeing here. Just, just, just the way you said it, Dan, uh, trying to keep good working white men down. <laughs> All for you, Johnny. Uh, the, these yeah. uh, these setbacks concerned Roosevelt because he was worried that all of the hard work of his previous term, what he had planned in the future, might be undone by a scant court majority of five men. Uh, in order to battle this, Roosevelt uh, and his uh, his advisors came up with a plan to alter the Supreme Court. For every justice over 70 years old, the president would appoint a new justice, up to six new appointees. Roosevelt proposed a plan to the public in one of his fireside chats. He uh, argued that the Constitution and the New Deal needed to be protected from the Supreme Court, especially those, ah. uh, those justices that were out of touch with what the American people needed. Now, the Supreme Court, it's one of those uh, you're there till life yes. situations. Or until you retire. See, see that's nonsense. I, I really think there should be an age cap. I really think there should be an age cap for politicians, too. I think there should be an age cap. Why the fuck are you 70, year old, 70 years old and voting for something that's not going to affect you in the next five years? Fuck out of here. There needs to be limits on shit. Amen. So public opinion was split at first, but more and more um, bipartisan voices rose up against the plan to pack the courts. It was clear that the plan was becoming more and more unpopular. A committee of private citizens, the Committee to Uphold Constitutional Governance, spoke out against the bill and organized a letter-writing campaign. The plan didn't go well in Congress either. The bill proposing the changes never made it to the House floor, and an unorthodox maneuver, Roosevelt then had the bill introduced to the Senate. Traditionally, bills proposed by the president start in the House and then move on to the upper chamber. In this case, it didn't matter. The Senate did hold a hearing on the bill on the Senate Judiciary Committee, but it met strong resistance there as well. Interestingly, interestingly, from a Republican standpoint, the argument over the bill did not include them. Instead, it split Democratic senators. Though it eventually made it to the full Senate floor, it was lambasted and sent back to committee for uh, revision. <clears throat> um, 
So Roosevelt also lost the battle of public perception, one of the few times he did. The public did not turn against the president of the New Deal, but it was a little disillusioned by this attempted power grab by the president. Furthermore, Roosevelt lost many members of his own party. His vice president, John Nance Garner, had opposed the plan and refused to serve as vice president in the next election. Some members of the Democrats... So this was big. Yes. They were... This looked like this was huge. Like this just looked like Roosevelt. You know, you're giving a lot of information here. Yeah, but but we need to take into context what's happening and how big it is, Dan. Like the vice president just said, "I'm not going to be your vice president." Right. This is huge. Like this is it's got to cause like waves throughout the entire country. Oh, it, it divided an even more divided uh, political uh, feel. Like it, you know, like I said, you had Democratic senators fighting Democratic senators because you know, as Democrats, they're supposed to be like, "Yes, sir, yes, sir, Mister Boss Man." <coughs> but they weren't, and they weren't fighting against Republicans. They're fighting against themselves. Um, <sighs> So after the court packing episode, moving forward with other legislative proposal became much harder. Ironically, Roosevelt would have had a major impact on a Supreme Court. As the president who served the longest, Roosevelt appointed eight justices in his tenure. William O. Douglas was appointed in 1939, and he served until 1975. Roosevelt influenced the court for four decades, long after he died in 1945. He also received criticism from other sources as well. One of his harshest was the Kingfisher, uh, Huey Long from Louisiana. He was a brash, dynamic, and boisterous politician. Uh, Long originally supported the New Deal, deal as a Louisiana senator, but he, like other people, he came became disillusioned with the plan when he realized that Roosevelt and the New Deal were never going to redistribute the nation's wealth. Long also felt that the New Deal did not go far enough in its effort to relieve the poor. So Long continued Wasn't that guy shot? Yes. Long even proposed his own relief program called Share Our Wealth with the slogan, Every Man a King. It was an ambition plan and that was popular and had many chapters across the country. But in the political climate of D.C., it stood very little chance of gaining any traction. Still, FDR felt threatened by Long and his popularity. Many called him a demagogue and compared him to Hitler in style and temperament. Long was killed in oh, Louisiana wow. in 1935 by the relative of a political rival. Huey Long is remembered in various books movies, and television programs. All the King's Men, written by Robert Penn Warren, is considered the best representation of long in literature, even though Warren denied the comparison. It wasn't just from the left that Roosevelt and the New Deal faced criticism. As one might expect, there was a generous amount of criticism from the right as well. The former President Herbert Hoover was a vocal critic of Roosevelt and the New Deal, still clinging to the ideas of a balanced budget and maintaining a pro-business attitude. Roosevelt's former colleague, Al Smith... You know, Herbert Hoover... 
Yeah. He really just sounds like a fucking stick in the mud. Herbert Hoover can go Herbert fuck himself. Uh, Al Smith <laughs> also felt that the New Deal went too far towards workers' rights. Again, we have this, oh, my God, it's socialism. Oh, my God, it's this. Oh, my God, it's that. Because like I said, no matter what it is, it could be a bill that would give Americans $100,000 free and clear. And people still be like, oh, my God, blah, 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 this is bad. Or you could have a turtle vote it down in, in the Senate and say Americans don't need $2,000, even though he made $3,532 that week. But, you know, this isn't about modern times. This is about 1936. Preach, 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 preach. So uh, William Randolph Hearst was once a supporter of the New Deal began to oppose it when New Deal policies started to levy, levy higher taxes on the wealthy and on inheritance. Uh, such policies... Now, Dan. Are, yeah. Dan, keep in mind for context to these to, to people listening, they might not know everything here. William Randolph Hearst was a media conglomerate. Yes. Uh, again, uh, he was a supporter of the New Deal, but once he realized that he was getting taxed more, kind of like 50 cents in a month before this uh, this past election, he switched sides. Okay. You know what? I was going to let that go, but it's, it's not plural, 50 cent. And then he retracted his support for Donald Trump. We're going to leave 50 alone. Uh, I can just every day, I can see why someone shot him nine times. Wow. <laughs> I mean... I like him. He's a bit of a he's a bit of a bully, and I normally don't like that. But he like he does it in a different way. I'm a big Fifty Cent fan. Yeah, but you have and, to uh, agree. You can see why somebody shot him. Hey, Fifty, reach out. I'm willing to do business. We can get some power shit over here. <laughs> um, so, though not the wealthiest of critics, one of the loudest was a priest from Michigan, Father Charles Coughlin. Father Coughlin hosted a radio program that was syndicated across the country, reaching millions of listeners. At first, mm. Coughlin supported the New Deal, but later opposed it when he felt Roosevelt was too soft on bankers. Coughlin had a strange outlook on world politics. He was a champion of the working class and a supporter of Huey, Huey, Huey Long, but was an ardent anti-communist. His anti-communist beliefs were in part formed by his opposition to internationalism, which he believed Roosevelt was trying to do with the United States. In many ways, Coughlin was rem reminiscent of evangelists of a bygone era, seeing corporate interests and socialists under the influence of foreign elements as the twin enemies of the real America. Various prominent uh, Catholic Roosevelt supporters tried to get Coughlin to lay off the administration, but they were unsuccessful. And as Europe and the world slid closer and closer to war, Coughlin's anti-internationalism became more and more isolationist and nationalist. What, what's more, kind of like what happened in Germany, uh, what's more, Father Coughlin was in, oh, wow, uh, was espousing decidedly, wow, I was fucking right, anti-Semitic views. Though he was never endorsed Nazism, he did speak favorably of Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. 
he <laughs> this is a man of God. Uh, he held that communism was largely the result of Jewish leadership and the fascists were a better alternative. Oh, man. Why are the Jews getting all the blame? Again, they're an easy scapegoat. Very. Um, so not only did the Roosevelt uh, administration try to get Coughlin off the air, because uh, these are very toxic uh, ideologies, but the Vatican tried to get Father Coughlin off the air. The people he reports to. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. You're it going too off the rails. It wasn't until the eve. <laughs> uh, Father Coughlin, we know the deal. You can only molest little boys. No preaching about this Nazism and stop hating Jews. But keep diddling the little boys. God damn. That's sadly, like, truer than I would like to believe. Like, uh, you got to shut up about this bullshit. We know you're fucking kids, but just shut the fuck up about this big stuff. It wasn't until the beginning of World War II that Father Coughlin would be removed from the air. Tighter restrictions were placed on radio stations, especially those that broadcast controversial views. They're turning to freaking frogs, kid. Oh, shit, shut up. <laughs> yeah, I was just getting ready to say shout out to my boy Alex Jones. Uh, for instance... The idea that the United States should maintain a rigid neutrality with regards to World War II. So later, as the United States entered World War II, Father Coughlin was forced from all public activities, save his weekly, uh, uh, weekly, uh, what are they called? Congregations in his home parish in Michigan. First off, why is this guy still a priest? <laughs> you know, can't yeah, they just absolutely. can't they de-net collar somebody? Uh, you know, like you can dis <laughs> dis thank God you got that. Uh, like they disbar lawyers. Can't they do this with a priest? Yeah, guess, they can, but fuck them. But he was, I, I mean, I guess he was too fanatical, uh, to, uh, to really, you know, listen to that. Like, oh yeah, they took my neck collar away, but I'm still a man of God. Um, yeah, that's the so, thing. It's like self self-producing shit. Like you can you already got a bit of a following. They know you're a priest. Now even if they, they take the title away from you, you can still preach. Right. Um so though progress during the uh the depression was often slow, overall from the low point in 1933, there's a steady improvement to the economy. Um unemployment trended downward production and wages rose, and at the low point in 1932, the stock market made steady gains during Roosevelt's presidency. Uh, by early 1937, much of the economic sector had reached 1929 levels. Then between 37 and 38, things began to fall. Unemployment shot up almost to 20%. Manufacturing production was almost fell off considerably. Uh, though wages stayed relatively stable, the number of people losing their jobs made consumers cautious, causing slowdowns in purchases. This in turn caused production to be cut back even further. The stock market also tumbled throughout 1937, closing the year down 37%. People feared that the bad times were coming back. But, of course, nobody feared this more than FDR. Uh, knowing the power mm -hmm. um, and an economic crisis could have in public uh, opinion, Roosevelt was determined to reverse the trend, but also to make sure his administration didn't take the blame. 
For much of 37, Roosevelt and his political enemies fought one another over who was responsible for the downturn because that works well for Americans. Um, yeah. <laughs> for conservatives and business leaders, the blame placed in, uh, was placed squarely on the policies of the New Deal. It's not our fault. It's their fault. Uh, the feeling was that the Roosevelt administration was hostile to big business, more favorable to labor and unions. By emboldening the labor, uh, strikes resulted hurting the economy, and additional higher taxes were taking a toll on the economy as well. By 1937, the fruits of these policies were coming to bear. But at the complete other end of the spectrum, uh, <clears throat> was the belief that the executive branch reversed course too soon in regards to government and deficit spending. Feeling pressure for conservative Democrats in the American tradition and values of a balanced budget, Roosevelt began cutting spending on the many of the New Deal programs. Uh, this change proved disastrous mm. for the uh, fragile economy. You don't take something off life support and administer morphine when it needs to be on life support. It was a keen to stopping a medical treatment too soon. Kenyanism, economics, and those uh, in the administration who adhered to the philosophy urged the president to reconsider. FDR blamed business leaders and the very wealthy. He was convinced that they were trying to undermine his administration and create another depression. He even asked the FBI to investigate and see if something like this actually existed. It did not. This didn't stop Roosevelt and his lieutenants from attacking the wealthiest Americans by name, including the Ford family, the Morgans, and the DuPonts. Harold X, Roosevelt's uh, Secretary of the Interior, warned that if it left unchecked, the United States would become a fascist nation. In the end, you know, go ahead. It's so easy to blame the rich for everything. Um, I get a lot of that because they do do stuff, but like with all his blaming, didn't he reflect on maybe I shouldn't have pulled the funding too early on this or that? Well, yeah. Like I said, you always have this atmosphere of, you know, big business will work out for big business. Republicans will look out for Republicans, Democrats, so on and so forth. So when some, some, someone does something even for the better of the nation to impede on what they're doing, they're going to hate it. Like Henry Ford, again, we talked about the Battle of the Overpass. He didn't want to have labor unions. A lot of these businesses didn't. Like the collateral bargaining, like that hurt businesses in the long run. Uh, required minimum wages hurt companies. So like they're like, oh, he's attacking us here. This is bad. So, you know, and everything just kind of led back to this almost the second depression. You know, minimum wage gets on my goddamn nerves because it's so low right now that you can't afford to live off of it. You know what I mean? You can't just have a 40-hour week on minimum wage and provide for yourself. But at the same time, you know, those companies that pay minimum wage, I think Chris Rock had in a bit or maybe Dave Chappelle, but it's like I would pay you less if I can is what they're telling you. Oh, yeah, 100%. But in the end, Roosevelt and Congress – Return to higher levels of spending, Pow pouring fundings back into the WPA and the PWA and other relief programs. New Ag Agricultural Adjustment Act was passed, um, 
spreading funding among the nation's farmers. The Kenyanism argument won out, and by the end of 1938, the economy was again on the upswing, much to the relief of Roosevelt. Ultimately, what caused and then ended the Roosevelt recession as the period between 1937 and 1938 became known was probably a combination of the above factors, uh, the attempt to return to a balanced budget was premature, and some of the policies regulating businesses were becoming obsolete. As the decade was drawing to a close, however, there are other events that were causing as much, if not more, concern than the economy. By the end of 1938, world affairs became a greater concern for many Americans. Hmm. Absolutely. It's time to expand beyond our little bubble now. You know, what's going on in the world affects us. Well, this in 38 is when you started to see uh, the Blitzkrieg and everything that's about to come. You know, so Americans are like, oh, yeah, we're in this horrible depression. But there's something going on over here and it scares the shit out of me. Oh, I bet. I bet, man. So, uh, depression, the Great Depression, uh, maybe depression in general, was a concern of many Americans throughout 1930s. The economic collapse and hardship that followed demanded the attention of all American leaders. FDR and the New Deal were determined to resuscitate the United States economy and provide only relief to American workers. But also some measures of stability against uh, such an event uh, ever happening again. Though domestic issues were paramount to the Roosevelt and, uh, administration, it would be a mistake to suggest that foreign policy was completely ignored. Uh, the watchword for American diplomacy in the 1930s was neutrality. In the early 30s, many lawmakers were opposed to becoming entangled in another foreign war like World War I. The Senate committee investigated U.S. involvement before and during the First World War and found that American companies, uh, mostly in banking and munitions, profited greatly from the war. After these facts were brought to light, the moniker Merchants of Death were used to describe those that profited from war. Uh, public opinion believed that getting involved in another na nation's business was not only bad for American soldiers, but it was a moral wrong when it came to making money off war. Dan, 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 I yes, wish yes. they kept those sentences. Me too. Because we dove so much shit that had nothing to do with us, man. Fuck. I mean, and we covered some of those. The Korean War, Spanish-American yeah. War, and there's several others. Like, it's just we adopt this idea of being everybody's big brother, and it's just, you know, it's never fully turned out well for us. Yeah, we even talked about Vietnam, another big one. You know, there's been many conflicts we were involved in that we had no part. Dan, you are yeah. showing your cellular telephone on our video. I am sorry. <sighs> this guy can't keep it in his pants for, for 30 minutes. Tell his boyfriend, keep it, keep it cool. I'm recording, goddamn. Yeah, I know. He's freaking out. So sorry. 
Oh, uh, so 1935 world events were escalating at a rapid pace towards open warfare between many countries. In response, Congress passed the 1935 Neutrality Act that prohibited U.S. companies from supplying war materials to belligerent nations. Though Roosevelt felt such acts were short-sighted and could prohibit the United States from taking quick actions, uh, <clears throat> referenced the Neutrality Act when speaking about the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. He assured the American public that the United States would not get involved in any conflict in any way. The policy of neutrality continued in 1936 and expanded into 37 to cover civil wars, a direct response to some American companies selling materials to General Franco in the Spanish Civil War. The Neutrality Act of 37 also held the provision of cash and carry. It allowed warring nations to buy American um, to buy American materials uh, if they provided the shift, shipping and paid up front. This way there is oh. no debt to draw the U.S. in, nor was American merchant ships at risk faring into the war zones. Uh, Roosevelt also called on the United States to quarantine conflicts, especially aggression, aggressor nations. He was specifically concerned with Japan, who had invaded China beginning the Second Sino-Japanese War. The Spanish Civil War was another international conflict that further ruptured the overall isolationist view of the United States. Over, over 2,000 Americans volunteered to fight against the fascist forces of General Franco and the Lincoln Battalion, part of the international, international Lincoln Brigade. The Spanish Civil War was seen as an important struggle in the fight against fascism, led especially by those uh, on, on the left in the U.S. politics. Um, events in 1939 further chipped away at the American poli policy of internet uh, isolationism and neutrality. The first was the German violation of the Munich Agreement by invading Czechoslovakia. The promise of peace in our time was broken, and the Munich Agreement had become a cautionary tale, uh, encouraging a decisive and strong action instead of appeasement when dealing with belligerent nations. At their invasion of Poland in September 1939, the date was the date that is given as the start of World War II, Roosevelt was able to convince Congress to extend the cash and carry plan to aid Great Britain and France in their fight against Germany. <clears throat> in addition, the Neutrality Acts of 35 and 37 were repealed, giving the administration much greater leeway in deciding how to deal with warring nations. Uh, and on the home front, um, February 1939, as the German-American Bund rally at Madison Square uh, Garden, not only was a rally of 20,000 pro-Nazis shocking, but the violence that erupted between protesters and the guards of the Bund convinced many that Nazism was counter to American values. The second inc incident that influenced public opinion was the voyage of the MS St. Louis. The ship left Hamburg in the spring of 1939 and arrived in Havana at the end of May. After being refused by the Cuban government, the St. Louis tried to dock in the United States. Public opinion was divided, and as the mood of Congress in Roosevelt, many people were sympathetic to the specific situation, but were also fearful of relaxing any immigration laws that in some minds would increase competition for jobs and resources, which were already oh, very... Man. 
Uh, the refugees on board the ship sent a personal telegram to the president. Roosevelt did not answer. The St. Louis was forced to sail away from Miami after an unsuccessful appeal to the Canadian government. The ship was forced to return to Yuma. The sad uh, story is that of the 937 passengers who embarked from Hamburg, 532 were sent to concentration camps, and of those, 254 oh. died. Though the latter oh, information... That sucks. Though the latter information did not come to light until after the war, the story of the St. Louis was further evidence that world events would sooner rather than later approach American shores. So in late 39, the political atmosphere in the United States was not ready for the full mobilization of the military. However, Roosevelt was able to push forward on a limited mobilization and called for an increase of 227,000 in the regular army and another 235,000 uh, <clears throat> for the National Guard. These preparations were largely in response to German victory in Poland and almost assured invasion of the West come in 1940 and continued war between Japan and China. In both conflicts, the United States supported as much as they could the invaded nations. Now, as the decade came to a close, international turmoil had an effect on the U.S. economy. Unemployment fell to its lowest point, and the industry, industry was also responding as the FDR administration called for increases in the production of aircraft and naval vessels. By the end of 1940, a new Selective Service Act enacted a draft for the first time when the United States was at peace. So a lot of stuff going so on. So you're telling me, thanks, thanks to Adolf Hitler and his crusade is what uh, a lot of the bounce back for the American economy is. Yes. So the Japanese attack on Pearl wild. Harbor uh, on December 7, 1941, thrust the United States into a worldwide conflict that radically altered the nation. At that moment and ever since, if there is any doubt that the Great Depression was coming to a close, the entry of the United States into World War II placed the question to bed. Uh, near the end of the war, the United States was almost at full employment with the unemployment rate at a mere 1.2%. Women were employed in record numbers, and the opportunities for minorities in the United States were as plentiful as they have ever been. But the Great Depression okay. was not forgotten. One of the biggest fears of many Americans after the war was that the Depression would return. Maintaining a strong economy was the key domestic concern of politicians in the immediate post-war era. The repurposing of manufacturing to domestic product was important, but the United States assumed a greater role, role in world affairs post-World War II. Part of that responsibility was the continued production of war materials. With the threat of fascism defeated, there is a new threat, global communism. A larger mm -hmm. armed force was maintained by the United States. Those that left the service at the war were the first recipients of the GI Bill, dedicated to the education and training of former soldiers. Being one of the few nations not physically decimated by war, because Europe was tore up. Europe was tore the fuck oh, yeah. up. The uh, United States was able to sustain a strong economy for nearly two decades. Though there were economic downturns starting in the 70s, 
Nothing even as remotely as devastating as the Great Depression occurred in the United States until 2008. Even though the Great Recession was a difficult time, many of the structures put in place in the 30s made sure a full-scale depression didn't occur again. As though that lived through the Great Depression continued to leave us, it is important to remember the hard lessons learned from such a traumatic decade. Perhaps it is best to remember that by joining and working together, any crisis can be met. Good words, man. I wish we were unified in that because you mentioned the Great Recession of uh, 2008, man. We are going through some shit right now. It's not necessarily stock market involved all the way. But, like, the world or the country at least needs to come together, man. That, that's really just from uh, everything being shut down and only a few corporations being allowed to collect uh, income and stuff like that. So, yeah, but now that that's happened, there's so many people that have lost their businesses. You know what I mean? Right, right. And plus, you know, so Americans down and out. And remember, like, the basis of you know, re-stimulating the economy is putting money to it. And if you have a lot of Americans at a job and struggling to provide for their own, then they're not going to go to Walmart and drop $200. Absolutely, man. 100%. Oh. You know, it, it's interesting that all this stuff uh, got put into play. And it seems like, again, Dan, the theme of the show, uh, we are not learning from our mistakes. <laughs> Everything is cyclical. It goes in a circle. You know, I'm not a communist. I'm not a big socialist. But there needs to be plans in place to help Americans from, you know, just dying uh, from starvation, being kicked out of their homes, things of that nature. There needs to be social social platforms in place. You know, we're supposed to be the greatest country in the world, but we're not. Right. No, we aren't. But, well, I mean, uh, what do you think of today's episode? Very interesting. You know, a lot of information. And I feel like it was labeled as the Great Depression episode, but it was more intertwined with the bulk of FDR's pregnancy. And I'm sure that's because of just how history works. Yeah, no, 100%. And it's... I mean, the FDR administration was so key to the Great Depression is that we have to talk about the programs. We have to talk about the conflicts because we just can't remember the Great Depression as Americans got poor, new president came in, Americans started to get back to where they were. It's a lot more than that. One person tried to help, maybe not in the best way, but then everybody else is like, no fair, the Democrats are getting the credit. No, my money. How dare the people work a better job? You know, that kind of thing. And we just kind of... <clears throat> See, now... Go ahead. Back then, it was like, here, the Democrats are helping. The Republicans are like, oh, no. And now it's like both parties are just like, yeah, fuck the people. Yeah, no, 100%. And it's our job as history podcasters to uh, criticize history. You know, because... Not everything is going to be taught. 90% of everything isn't taught in schools. You know, like we even go back to episode seven with Emmett Till. Like how much stuff in that case is still being used today? I mean, people people would be like, oh, well, he whistled at a white woman. He deserved to die. 
now it's like, oh, he's carrying a bottle of Sprite and Skittles. He's going to get high. Ooh. You know? It's it's up yeah, to us. It's, it's awful. <laughs> it's, it's up to us to criticize this stuff. Because, again, we might not be a huge platform. But we can't remember history as just goody-goody two-shoes. As just like this happy, positive um, thing. Because it's not. Uh, the human race comes from turmoil and tra tragedy. It isn't happy event after happy event after happy event. Even like what we're happening now with the plague happened in the, uh, the early uh, 20s, you know, with the, uh, the Spanish flu. And then before that, you know, as we saw with like the Silk Road episode, there's been several plagues. Some of them have been bad. Some of them haven't been that bad. But it happens because everything, again, is cyclical. We're going to go in a circle again and again. We might even see another, you know, quote-unquote plague before we die. We might see another economic depression because that's just how the world works. Nothing stays the same. It all repeats itself. And as far as I can tell, there's probably not a fucking thing we can do to stop it from happening again and again because people can never come together and unite under one front. Well put, Dan. Well put. Yep. Hashtag went off. Uh, so, anyways. <laughs> I love it. Again, folks, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can, uh, again, we are revamping 2021. We are taking the world by the balls with our podcast. As you can see with this first episode, we're implementing, we're using pictures and video and audio. And we're also going to start revamping our YouTube page. So please, What in the History Pod on YouTube, check it out. We have some stuff up there. It isn't our best, but here forward, uh, it's going to be uh, a sparkling contrast compared to what it is. So I hope you like this new, uh, this new format we have for this show. I hope you enjoyed it. I had a great time. Uh, I can see the smile on my bestie's face. He looks like he's having a good time. And uh, I would be... And it would be horrible for me not to repeat this. But again, for the month of January in our Teespring stores, that's Teespring's What in the History podcast. Link will be in the description. But uh, all the donations or all the money from the store for the month of January will go to Johnny and his family uh, because, again, they suffered something pretty terrible uh, last week. And uh, I just want to, and I hope everybody else listening not only wants to wear our sexy gear, but wants to help uh, Johnny Smith and his family get through this horrible, horrible event that they have suffered. Um, Johnny, do you have anything else? No, man. Uh, thank you. I wouldn't have shit on us in the past like that. I would have said we were doing good and we're only getting better. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like Dan said, I, I thank everyone for the outpouring of support. Everyone, hey, is there anything I can do to help? And the only question I can ask him is, how proficient are you at necromancy? Um, <laughs> well, Johnny, I got a no, skill that I haven't told you about. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you, everybody. Uh, Dan, I, I thought it was a great episode, and uh, it's fascinating. Yes. Uh, and next week, um, do we want to do 
mystery, or do we want to do an episode that'll make you blow your load? I want to blow my load next week. All right, so next week, episode 22, we are talking about one of the original crime bosses, Lucky Luciano. And uh, <clears throat> for those of you who have listened into the past and listened to Al Capone episode, you know that Johnny loves organized crime, or at least learning about it. It's not like he's running a, a mafia family out of his bedroom right now called the Inquisitive Minds. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a great episode. And I can't wait uh, for you guys to hear my wonderful voice next week. Uh, as always, and as I'm struggling with who I am, I am Dan Brady. Dan's struggling with who he is. I'm struggling with my existence. I'm Johnny Smith. And we hope you guys enjoyed. And as my great co-host always says, peace and love. Peace and love, everybody. It was a moonless night. I was 18 years old. Life was going nowhere. It was midnight at the railroad tracks. Miles away from anywhere I said my dark prayer You didn't look quite How I figured Green suit and black hair Smile on his face Ribbons on his chest Seem to walk on air. He promised to get me out of this town. I'd be handsome, wealthy, and brave. I'd travel the world, be powerful, but a slave until my grave. Now it's raining in the desert I said always gotta rain on me I'm just another of the devil's dogs would they ever want with me he grinned I signed my name diabolical back seal Cadence of an evil choir Sand shifted, I fell into the pit And marched with the other damned Until I was one of them But forever deal with Satan They all face judgment to me Sweating
Star